this morning, as we continue our study in 1 Timothy, uh, we plan to complete, Lord willing, our study in chapter 3 of the qualifications of elders and deacons. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we are going to look at the apex, the theological apex of this letter, verses 14 through 16. And uh, really, you could see the whole letter of, of 1 Timothy at the mountain peak of coming to the mountain peak of verses 14 through 16. And I've been studying these verses for several weeks now, and I'm just excited to be able to share the great truths in, in these verses with you next, next Sunday. Of course, this Sunday as well. But uh, the, I, it's, it's such a wonderful thing to look at the center, the core, the peak of, of a letter and rejoice in what God has for us. I'd like for us to stand together one more time, if you will, and let's read 1 Timothy 3, 8-13 together. Let's read this together in unison. 1 Timothy 3, 8-13. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, what privilege we enjoy this morning to wake up, to be able to nourish ourselves physically and spiritually, to come here freely, to meet together, to sing together, to lift up our voices with open windows and pray together and to preach the Word of God boldly to one another, proclaim the Lord's death at His table. What a joy this is. Thank You that we have Your Word, Your inspired, authoritative, sufficient Word. We can open it. And You are a God who speaks to us by Your Spirit through Your Word. Let us hear Your voice today through Your Word. And we ask that You would convict us of our sin. That You would convict us of our dependence upon ourselves. And that You would give us by Your Spirit the attitudes of humility and repentance trust and love for You and love for one another. Father, make us more and more into the church that You have called us to be. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Again, we look at God's Word this morning in 1 Timothy 3 and we have just a couple more verses to look at in terms of the qualifications for deacons. And of course, remember the theme that we are dealing with here in the letter of 1 Timothy. Look at verse 14, and I'll, and I'll continue to remind you of this, particularly the next week as we look at these verses in detail. But Paul is writing this letter so that the people of God would know how to behave as the church of God. And we'll really talk in great detail about the importance of that next week and what it means that we are called the household of God and the pillar and buttress of the truth, the church of the living God. 
And because this is our calling and identity, our individual and corporate behavior matters very, very much in the redemptive purposes and mission of Christ. We believe in the sovereignty of God, do we not? But this sovereign God has also ordained means by which His purposes unfold. That doesn't negate His sovereignty. Sometimes we can rest in the sovereignty of God in a healthy way, but sometimes we can understand the sovereignty of God in an unhealthy way. And that's not anything to say against God's sovereignty. It's our perception of it in that we think, well, nothing matters if God's sovereign. All of it is going to be as it will be. Yes, God's will will be done, but He he has chosen to use the proclamation of the Gospel through His people. Their lives reflecting the holiness of the Gospel and the truth of the Gospel matter in the sovereignty of God as His kingdom unfolds. And so Paul has specifically been addressing the behavior of the church as it relates to the character of the men whom it affirms into leadership, particularly the offices of elder and deacon. And so the main idea of these last verses, 8-13, through are this, because the office of deacon is a critical role in the body of Christ by God's design, we must affirm only the men whom the Holy Spirit has chosen. Well, how do we do that? How do we go about affirming the men that God has chosen for the office of deacon? Well, by now you can answer that question with me. There are five helpful marks that Paul gives us in this letter or pointers, instructions. Number one, we've already looked at evaluate the personal character of the prospective deacon, verses 8 and 9. Second, employ the testing of the prospective deacon, verse 10. Number three, evaluate the wife of the prospective deacon, verse 11. We looked at that last week and this morning. Is my hope to finish this and look at the last two. Evaluate the relational character of the prospective deacon. Verse 12, envision the gain of the faithful deacon. So let's look right at this. Number four this morning, verse 12. Evaluate the relational character of the prospective deacon. Verse 12 really puts two parts before our eyes of the relational character of the deacon. One, how he relates to his wife. And secondly, how he manages his children and household. When we see this phrase in verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, there are at least four typical interpretations that people have presented as the meaning of this section. And, and you'll find it to be a very similar phrase as what was found earlier about the elder. You look at verse 2, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Well, here we have that same phrase, or very similar, the husband of one wife. Here are the four things that are typically presented as the meaning of that phrase. One, someone might say, well, a deacon cannot be single. He has to have a wife. He must be married and have children. Well, I don't believe that that's the proper interpretation for this phrase because otherwise Paul himself wouldn't have been qualified for the office of deacon. And additionally, his affirmations of singleness for the sake of devotion to ministry in 1 Corinthians 7 would be meaningless. So I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here, that a deacon would have to be married and have children. A second interpretation that is sometimes presented is that a deacon can never have been divorced or widowed and then remarried either during his entire life or at least during his Christian life. Some people take that particularly to mean that he's never been divorced and remarried for any reason in any phase of his life. And I don't think this phrase by itself distinguishes. You look at this phrase alone, it doesn't seem to distinguish between how you came to have a second spouse, if that's the issue that's being excluded there. Did, so whether a deacon came by another spouse through 
being widowed or divorced and then remarried. In this case, if that's what this phrase means, he couldn't have another spouse either way, either during his lifetime or his Christian life. He, he must have had only one wife. If, if this phrase is referring to the number of wives that a person has had, he could only ever have one for any reason. And additionally, I think Paul gives his blessing to remarry after the death of a spouse in other Scriptures. So there seems to be no reason why that a deacon couldn't have more than one wife, particularly if his spouse died and then he was to be remarried. And Paul possibly, even after divorce in some very unique and specific cases, depending on how you believe 1 Corinthians 7 and other texts are interpreted, may allow a man to be remarried. So don't think that this phrase, the husband of one wife, deals with a person not being single or making sure he doesn't have more than one wife regardless of the cause. A third, a third um, interpretation for this phrase that has been selected by people is that a deacon cannot be a polygamist. Is that what this phrase means? And again, I don't think this is Paul's focus either because if a man was a polygamist, there would be a much greater concern than whether or not a man was qualified for the office of deacon. There would be a concern whether or not the man was a Christian. Polygamy was certainly present in the culture of Paul's day, but it doesn't seem to be a problem within the church because it isn't addressed anywhere directly in the New Testament. And uh, so, so while it's obvious that, a pol- that polygamy would disqualify some from being a deacon, it, it doesn't seem that that's Paul's point here either. The fourth interpretation that I would share with you I, is the one that I embraced. I believe this is what Paul's dealing with here. The fourth interpretation is one where Paul would say these words literally mean, literally mean that, that he must be a man of one woman. A one woman man. So what does that mean? This means that a man who desires the office of a deacon, if he is married, must then be devoted mind and body to one woman. And that one woman is his wife. This doesn't mean that a man will never be tempted to sin sexually. And please underscore the word tempted. Right? doesn't mean that a man will never be tempted. That a deacon must never then be tempted to sin sexually. It doesn't, this doesn't mean that a man will never lust in his heart after another woman in, in his heart, in his mind. Temptation is everywhere. In this world. And the sinful lusts of the human heart are involved in every one of us before we are glorified. And we can be attracted to those temptations. A man must never think that he is above temptation until he is with Christ in heaven. But this qualification of being a one-woman man does mean that the deacon must be committed to fighting and winning the war in his mind against those temptations. And he is actively fighting and winning that war not because of his own ability and efforts, but by the grace of God at work in his life. There's progress, just like his sanctification overall. There's progress in this war, this fight against the temptations of the world to cease being a one-woman man. And he does it out of love for his Savior. And out of love for his wife. Out of love for his church. This means that a Christian man, that as a Christian man, he has been faithful to his wife. He's not pursued sinful relationships with other women emotionally or physically, either on the screen through pornography and such venues or in person. You can't be a one woman man and engage in pornography. This means that he has guarded his heart and life vigorously against the violation of being a one-woman man. 
a deacon must prove himself to be a one-woman man. Those considering him for deacon must ask those hard questions. That's important. Yes, they're awkward questions to ask, but we are called to ask those of each other. Brother, are you a one-woman man? Ask his wife. Is your husband a one-woman man? Ask those who know him. He must be a man given mind and body to one woman, the wife that God has given to him. Why is this so important for the body of Christ? There's some implications that we can consider together. This qualification is of utmost importance. This quality is a primary area, primary target area where Satan tempts elders and deacons and, and any any one of God's men. And a particular area where men are prone to fall. Brothers, listen. Let this be a primary front of spiritual warfare for us. Constant surveillance. Constant vigilance is essential. Doesn't Paul call us to that? Watchful. Your adversary, the devil. Prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is one way he does that. Constant constant vigilance is necessary by the grace of God. Listen, men, if you sense that you are not progressing in this battle, no one is no one no one is temptation free, right? No one is no one never struggles with lust in their heart and mind. But if you sense that you, you are you are losing this battle. And it's clear and obvious to you. Maybe no one else knows about it, but you've sensed you're losing this and, and you're on the verge of moral failure either through media or in person. Don't wait to deal with your lust head on. Don't wait to deal with it. Deal with it now. It'll, it, it's one of those situations where now is always the best time to deal with it. Don't wait. Don't simply try to turn off your behavior and back away from fellowship or responsibility in the body of Christ so that you don't bring shame to yourself or others. Sometimes that, that, that's a, a big indicator. We just start backing away from people. Why? We, we don't want to be exposed in our shame. We don't want to have to deal with it. We say, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with it in my own heart. I'll take care of it in my own way. I don't want other people to know about this and I won't put myself in any sort of a fellowship situation where I'll have to be held accountable and be brought to shame. Don't do that, brothers. Don't do that. By God's grace. That's not how to handle this. It will rise up to bite you again. Seek the spiritual strength and accountability of your brothers in Christ now. Don't let guilt or shame or self-pity or fear keep you from hiding with your sin. Or keep you hiding with your sin. Don't let it do that. By God's grace, James fifteen six, James five sixteen says, "Therefore confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed." The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You know what that verse tells us? That when we are when we are sin sick in the body of Christ, we can we can come to one another and say, here's what I'm struggling with. Will you pray for me? Will you pray with me? And God says He will work through those prayers. Not because the prayers are inherently powerful or or because any one of us are inherently skillful, but because of the grace of God at work in our lives. These are the means that He promises to use. Proverbs 28.13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Let the man who was given great wisdom from God and yet chose to err from that wisdom and who had 700 wives and 300 concubines give us some practical advice about this, brothers. Have you ever sat down and read the book of Proverbs? I'm sure you have. The the father is urging his son And he takes three chapters, if you call them chapters, three sections of Proverbs. Proverbs 5, Proverbs 6, 20-35, and Proverbs 7. And he 
and he skillfully shows the the terror that ought to strike us as we approach sexual sin and temptation. Read those three. Proverbs 5, Proverbs 6, Proverbs 7. God has us to see these and take them seriously. Proverbs 4.23 Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Men, don't relax when it comes to this issue by God's grace. 1 Peter 5.8-9 Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Guard your hearts by the grace of God. Don't feed the passions which wage war against your soul. 1 Peter 2, 11-12 Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Man, you will, you will be fighting against yourself in this war. You will be slaughtering the spiritual troops of your own mind, just like the Midian army, if you will. If you try to wage the war of purity in your mind at the same time are continuing to feed your mind the sexually lustful images that so often appear in much of the media options available to us today. Do you understand that? The presentation of images and movies and games and literature and intentionally craft, it's intentionally crafted by the world system to be sexually appealing on some level, and it tends to feed the desires of the hearts of men and boys that, that the Apostle Paul told us that we must wage war against and, and kill. Are we at the same time trying to fight that battle and feeding the flames of our enemy at the same time in our heart, as it were? I guess you have to answer that question honestly when, when you set something in front of your eyes. Ask yourself, does this image inherently feed sinful sexual desire in my heart, in the heart of my son? Does it do that? Yes or no? And if it does, by God's grace, wage the war, brothers, in the, spirit, in the strength which the Spirit supplies. Leave it alone for the honor of your Savior for the good of your wife and family, for the edification of your church, for the spiritual well-being of your own soul. May the Lord enable us and supply to us by His grace an army of one women men who are, like Paul said, strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Who are putting on the whole armor of God that they may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians 6. 10 through 11. As we said throughout this series, these, these qualifications are for all of us, aren't they? They're for all of us. God calls us to these things. And so, also, we must evaluate the man who has a desire for the office of deacon. See if is, is he a one woman man by the grace of God? Is he? I want to give you some. Gospel hope for this fight, but I'm going to wait to the, our conclusion to do so. Let's, let's move into the second part of the relational qualifications. First, Paul draws, us our, draws our attention to the wife, his relationship with his wife. And then secondly, here in verse 12, managing his children and households well. Managing their children and their households well. What does that word mean to manage? Well, to be over, to superintend, to preside over, to be a protector, a guardian, to aid, to care for, to give attention to. It's a very broad word. It means a lot of different functions and activities of someone who is the head. Romans 12.8 uses the word, the one who leads with zeal. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. That's the same word for managing. Of course, in 1 Timothy 4.3, the same word is used for the elder. 1 Timothy 5.17 The elders who rule well. Same, same word. Titus 3.8 
may be careful to devote themselves to good works, to engage themselves in. That's actually the same word as well. Titus 3.14, learn to devote themselves to good works or to engage in good works. Again, the same, same word. So as this word is used in the New Testament, we can see that it clearly includes headship, leadership, oversight. But, it, but as we see how it's unfolded in the New Testament and, and how the word is used, it, it doesn't mean a leadership that is disinterested or disconnected or distant. This is not the leadership of a husband or father who gives orders only for his own benefit without an intimate knowledge and understanding of his wife and children. He's engaged with them. He's caring for them. This is the leadership of a husband and father who is devoted to the personal well-being of his family, even even at the expense of his own well-being at times. His headship strives to be well-informed and engaged with the weaknesses and strengths and needs of his family, his wife, his children. He's giving consistent protection and provision and watchful care according to their need. He's the guardian of his wife and children. He, he knows each member of his family well and leads them with understanding and provides for them according to their uniquenesses. And he does so physically, yes, but also spiritually. He elicits the insights of his wife, certainly, to inform his headship. It's essential. He oversees all of the affairs of his household and stewards them so that each individual in his house is nurtured in the Lord and given what they need to flourish by God's grace. And, and the text says that he is to do this well. That's that same word that comes up throughout this text, particularly in relationship to how a person manages. He does it with excellence. He does it honorably. Not perfectly, but reputably. Again, this word has a lot to do with his testimony before those whom he knows and and who know him best. He manages his family in such a way that those who know him can speak well of how he manages his home. He is continuing to grow in his effectiveness at managing his home. He cares about these things deeply. He labors hard at them in prayer, in the Word, in practice, all by the grace that God provides to him. I want us to remember and underscore here as we walk through these, the Apostle Paul gives us these and they elicit from us a response of, well, I want to do that. I want to be like that. And we're called to that. But I think we have to remember a couple of things here. It is only by sovereign grace that a man can manage his own household well. Do you agree with that? I mean, particularly when you come into a phase of, of, of trial and weakness in your life that, that lays you low, you come to see that it is a farce that you can do anything in your own strength. That's a joke, isn't it? It really is when it comes down to it. God gives us life and breath and everything. One independent thought is ridiculous. We need God for all of this. I mean, Adam, right? The the perfect man didn't manage his household well. How will we do so apart from God's grace? It is only by sovereign grace that a wife and children respond submissively to his management. Again, if the first son of Adam and Eve killed his younger brother, how will our children do better apart from the grace of God? Both good management and submissive in the home, submissiveness in the home are ultimately, listen, beloved, a work of God's grace in the hearts of all involved. There are many men who manage their households poorly and yet their wives and children are strengthened by God to follow in submission in spite of Him. Right? That happens. Praise the Lord for that. There are many men who manage their households well and yet their wives and children are insubmissive and rebellious. So again, it's important that we recognize clearly 
Who is the first cause of a household that is managed well and submissive and give glory where it is due? And go to the right place for strength and wisdom and help and ability. It is a work of sovereign grace for the good of God's people and the glory of God. Therefore, if a man desires the office of deacon, he must manage his children and household well. And this will be a result of God's enabling grace, empowering a man's desire and ability to labor well in this area and thus providing or proving to be the Spirit's choice for the office of deacon. God enables a man to want that and gives him the ability to live that way and enables his family to respond to him rightly. Now, now what are some implications from this qualification? Well, as we consider the role and responsibility of the deacon, the local church, I think it becomes clear that good management is essential. That's the wisdom of God at work in this text. Deacons will be ministering to God's people in many ways all the time. And good management ability must be a pattern of his character. Again, it's not perfect, but it's, it's got to be a God-given pattern. He'll be called upon to manage the collective resources of the people of God, which God has entrusted them for the work of ministry. Good management is required for that. He will be called upon to meet very personal and practical needs in the life of God's people. Physical needs, spiritual needs. Good management is required for that. He'll be called upon to organize different aspects of the ministry of the local church under the leadership of the elders. Aspects such as ushering and security and technology and music and outreach and fellowship and prayer and maintenance and food distribution. I mean, you name it, right? The deacons are busy. Right? They serve and they manage people. And they meet people's needs. They identify needs. They know their people well. And so the deacon is called to manage each of these ministries in a way that reflects the life-changing power of the Gospel and the holiness of Jesus Christ, the head of the church. And this is why the Apostle Paul was inspired by the Spirit to pen this qualification. Another implication I think is important to consider with this qualification that we talked about when we went through the, the qualifications of an elder, I want to bring it back here and remind you of it. Throughout this study, again, we've been underscoring the fact that these qualifications for deacon and elder are a standard of Christ-likeness that God commands every believing man to pursue. Not just deacons, not just elders. Even though the deacon and the elder are held accountable to this standard if he is to qualify. So every believing man ought to speak, ought to seek to manage his children and household well, right? And I'd have to say, brothers, if I were to single out the most important element to that management, is it is that a man would consistently teach the Word of God to his household as he depends upon the Lord to fill his heart with the Word and enable him to live out the Word of God before His family. Brothers, let me exhort you again by the grace of God to make a priority of filling yourselves with the Word of God and teaching the Word of God to your wives and children. Do you? Do you regularly teach the Word of God to your wives and your children? Lead them in the study of God's Word. Lead them in song. Lead them in prayer. That's your responsibility. That's your calling. It's part of what God has given you to do. It's the joy. It's a privilege of, of being, of, of having, of God giving you people in your life to follow you. Give them the word. Let, let me assure you that if you're not doing that one thing on a consistent basis, you're not managing your children or your household well. They need the word more than they need anything. Many men will make sure their wives and children are supplied with the things of earth and clothes and food and shelter and many extra enjoyments, but will neglect them relationally and neglect them in the teaching of the Word of God. Is it true? 
it is. But think of it, brothers. Why ultimately has God given you a wife? Why ultimately has God given you you children? Ultimately, why should you develop a close relationship with your wives and children? Why ultimately ought you to play with your children? Why? What are the reasons behind and underneath all of this? Should you put food on the table and clothes on their bodies and a roof over their head? The reason behind and under all of these efforts is so that they would know God through Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? Am I wrong with that? That they would know God through Jesus Christ and by His grace bring Him glory and experience His manifold love and grace now and forever. And so what that means is if you are doing all these earthly things to provide for your family, but you're not connecting them with relationally so that you can give, so that they can give you their hearts and so that, so that you can teach them the Word of God and, and, and the living God introduced to them, then all of your efforts to give them the things of earth could end in utter failure. It's like what Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he what, gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Many fathers will give the world to their families, but they won't give them Christ through the Word. Brothers, by the grace of God, give your wives and your children yourself, your heart, and win their heart so that, so that they will trust you to give them the most precious gift, the Gospel of Jesus Christ and Christ Himself through the Gospel. And brothers, if, if you struggled with that for a long time and you're like, I don't know how to do that. We're a family. Reach out to other brothers and say, how do I do this? Help me. Don't be too proud to ask for help. It doesn't come naturally to us to be who God wants us to be. We need each other. We need brothers. We need the Spirit of God at work in the body. You bear the responsibility of your wives and children like Paul bore the responsibility of the church. And he said, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Brothers, don't neglect to nourish yourselves in the Word of God and prayer. And nourish your family in the Word of God and prayer as well. The qualification from 1 Timothy 3.12 teaches us that if a man desires the office of deacon, he must be able, by the grace of God, to manage his children and his household well. And I'll tell you the truth. The best preparation that you could have to minister to other brothers and sisters in Christ is to minister first to your wife and children at home. It's great practice. Because your kids ask great questions. It is. It's a great time to prepare you to minister more effectively in the body. This is how God has called us. Because the office of deacon is a critical role in the body of Christ, we must affirm only the men whom the Holy Spirit has chosen. Now, secondly, this morning, let's look at that final point. Let's envision together the gain of the faithful deacon. Verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This final aspect of the qualification of the deacon is less of a qualification and really more of a motivation. It's a motivation for men with a passion for Christ and His church to actually pursue the office of a deacon. Do you remember how Paul began this chapter? He said, look at verse 1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a what? Noble task. And it's as if he's putting another bookend on the other side of these two offices and he says, well, those who serve well as deacons gain a standing for themselves, a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The word noble in verse 1 and the word good that I circled here in verse 13 is the same word. It's a good thing. This is excellent to pursue. 
This is Paul giving men a view of what will result by the grace of God as a man pursues the office of deacon and serves well in that office by the grace which God supplies. It's encouraging the brothers to pursue this. On the other hand, this final point may function really as an additional qualification. If we ask ourselves, should this man that we are considering for the office of deacon gain what Paul says a deacon should gain if he serves? Would that be a blessing to the church? Or would it be harmful to the church? You'll see what I mean in a moment. First of all, what does Paul say a faithful deacon will gain? A good standing. Those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing. That word for standing there means a step, a step up, a threshold up into a higher place, a a higher rank of dignity or degree of influence. And this standing is a good step, right? It's an excellent promotion. In other words, as this qualified deacon over the years serves faithfully with integrity of character and accuracy of doctrine, he'll be honored in the church by Christ and the, and the church, and the people of the church. It's not saying that a man seeks that honor for himself, but because of the grace of God at work in his life, producing holy ambition and ability to serve well as a deacon, he'll be given that honor, that place of influence by God and the the church around him. He'll be given greater opportunities for ministry to God's people. He'll gain a good standing with God's people. Greater spiritual respect and trust from God's people. Greater influence among God's people. And this may even imply that the deacon is affirmed into the office of elder as well, eventually. It's not a bad thing to have influence with people. Especially if what you're giving them is not yourself, but Christ. Right? That, that would, that's a joy. That's a joy to a man who seeks ministry in the body of Christ. I want people to trust a godly deacon because they will hear him and he'll let, they will let him minister to them and he will give them Christ. There's a good standing that is gained when a man serves well as a deacon. That's the work of the ascended Christ in and through him. And consequently, his good standing that is given to, to, to the deacon by Christ and by his church results in another gain. What's the other gain? Great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. What's this confidence Paul writes about? Boldness, a freedom in speaking, fearlessness, a cheerful courage, assurance. And it says there that this confidence is great. Confidence is great. There is much confidence. There's a, a large confidence that, will keep, that can be gained in the faithfulness of a deacon. In other words, When a faithful deacon is affirmed by Christ and his people by being given this good standing, that will bring to the faithful deacon a sense of confidence. Both he and his people that he serves will know that he belongs to Christ. The work of the Spirit through him will confirm, first of all, that he belongs to Christ. That he's filled with the Spirit of Christ. How else could a deacon serve faithfully unless he's filled with the Spirit of Christ? That he's being used by Christ for his glory and the growth of his church. He'll be trusted by the people who have benefited and flourished from his ministry. And they'll listen to him when he opens his mouth to speak to them of the faith that is in Christ Jesus. 
And he will confidently speak of Christ and the doctrines of Christ and the practices of Christ to those he serves because he will know that Christ has been working in him and is working through him. And he'll continue to speak with confidence for the good of the church and the glory of God. And when a faithful deacon sees God graciously working through him, it will energize him even further with a boldness to serve and speak Christ to those who have been entrusted into His care by Christ. Does that make sense? That's the result of the life of the faithful deacon. That's the gain. Good standing. Great confidence. And I think this really ought to motivate us. Good standing. Great confidence. Not not for ourselves, man but for the good of the body of Christ and the glory of God. That's why this motivates us. It ought to motivate each man to grow in their character and their doctrine and ministry by the grace which God supplies. If God would grant, listen, do you long to be used by God and His church to serve and to speak for the good of Christ's people and His glory? Do you have that desire bubbling in your heart? This verse is meant to elicit that. Again, not for your glory, but for the good of the people around you and for the glory of Christ. Then as the Lord wills, pursue the character that that, that Paul writes here. Pursue the doctrine that he calls us to. Pursue the service as a deacon. And as God wills, may all of us be used by God to affirm the men whom God has chosen for that office. Because the office of deacon is a critical role in the body of Christ, we must affirm only the men whom the Holy Spirit has chosen. Now, don't we have a very clear grid to work with? It's so wonderful that God has given to us His Word like this to help us to know where His hand is at work to bring elders and deacons into the body. It is... God's will for His church that it be led by godly elders and served by godly deacons. That's God's will, right? Clearly revealed in the Scriptures. Will you pray with me about this? Have you been praying? Will you pray with me about this daily? I'm asking you to. To pray daily that God would fulfill this chapter in the life of our church. And multiply among us godly elders and deacons. Men that will serve Christ well and the body well. Men we can send out to other churches to serve their well. I don't, I don't know what God has in store, but here it is. Here's His will for us. Will you pray about it with me daily? Will you ask God to do it? And if the Holy Spirit has convicted your heart this morning from His Word about your relationship with your wife or your household, brothers, I would urge you to take that conviction to the Lord in prayer with a great sense of urgency. Here's where the action and the dependence begins. Where are we with the Lord? Are we one women men? Are we managing our households well? And turn to the provisions of Christ, brothers. When we look at our hearts, we see them full of sin. This, like Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver us from this body of death? What's the answer to that? Christ Jesus will deliver us from this body of death. And in the meantime, He will work for our sanctification and is Turn to the cross of Christ where all of your sin was laid upon Him. Where He bore the wrath of God in your place. Every secret sin. Every sin of the heart. For you who are trusting in Christ, your sin has already been dealt with. The righteousness of Christ covers you. But that doesn't mean you can do nothing about the sin you still struggle with. Because Christ rose from the dead as well. 
And through that resurrection, He has given us new life. And He's filled you with His Spirit so that you can walk in newness of life and no longer be slaves to sin. Will you see Christ sufficient, not just in your justification, but also in your sanctification? Be a doer of the Word and not a self-deceived hearer, my brothers. May we all take this to heart. And listen, if, if you need another brother in Christ to come with you and pray with you and do battle with you by the Spirit and the strength which God supplies and the weapons of warfare which God has supplied to us, don't wait for that either. Reach out. Look around you. There are brothers and sisters in Christ here that love you and will do all that God enables them to do to help you to work through your personal struggle as you seek to love your wife and manage your home well. And Christ is coming soon, is He not? And then we'll see what really matters. Remember, the ascended Christ promises that He will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that is true individually and corporately. And so let's look to Him for these things together this morning in prayer. Would you stand with me? Our Father, we come to You knowing that we are sinful and fall short of who You have called us to be. Give us the grace we need to walk in newness of life. Provide for us many godly men in our body. Turn us into godly men, Father. Growing in holiness. Growing in clarity and boldness and accuracy in biblical truth. Growing in a passion to love our wives and lead our children. Father, without You we can do nothing. But because Christ is ascended and reigning in our hearts, we can do what He has called us to do by the strength which He supplies. Do Your good work in us, we pray. And may we delight in the provisions of Christ this morning as we sit together around His table. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.